0: Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, who are giving their place on the Leinster jersey to the Irish Heart Foundation for a day in support of the CPR for Schools programme.
1: Welcome to the Out of Time podcast with Malachi Clerken here and Pat Nugent with me. I wanted to start this week with something more serious than we usually get into right off the bat. Sonia Sullivan has a very interesting article in today's Irish Times, Pat, where she talks about Caster Semenya, the South African runner who won the 1500 metres in the Commonwealth Games during the week and presumably will do the same with the 800 metres over the weekend. Sonya has an interesting idea that I'm not sure I saw anywhere else. I'm not sure if you've heard of it anywhere else either. No, never. That she suggests that because of somenya 's natural advantages, uh, people will know that uh, she has uh, hyperandrogenism yeah. is the is the condition, whereas she has a higher naturally higher testosterone level than the women she is competing against. That's the very very layman's way of of putting it. Sonia, her idea in the column today is that uh, there should be an extra category of medal created for races that that um, people who have this condition are racing in. I'm just going to read some of it. She says, I think Semenya has at this stage established herself as such a strong personality on this circuit that it would be very difficult to tell her she can no longer run or compete. This has dragged on for nine years now and there needs to be a more humane way of dealing with this so the result is fair to all women competitors uh, it may be time to award more than three medals to allow athletes with hyper androgenism to compete in women's races. After all athletes cross the line, the medal should be awarded by category if needs be. As an example, in the 1500 metres, Semenya would receive the gold medal in her category. And then another gold would go to Beatrice Kepchoich from Kenya, uh, who originally came second. Silver would go to Melissa Courtney from Wales and bronze to Lyndon Hall. Uh, from Australia. Semenya is not the only female athlete with hyperandrogenism so it makes more sense to categorise the medals in this sensitive way particularly when this is a medical condition and so can be measured and athletes can know which category they're competing in. Um, it's a really interesting idea uh, and one that at first glance I kind of, you feel a bit queasy about because yeah. there's a certain what, what's the term they use there's a certain othering about it you know that, that you're you're you know, you're making, casting her out or casting people with that condition out and making them different to everybody else. But it's interesting. It, I, there's no simple way through it, I've, I've found, the more I think about it.
2: No, there absolutely isn't. I, I like the word, the, she used the word humane in there and I think that was quite a good way of putting it because she's attempting to to save Semenya from the othering as you call it mm. and also she's got a, a second um, track to her thinking where she says that it is unfair on the women that Semenya is competing against and that they need to be given hope mm. that was what uh, I think that her final word of the article is, is hope that because they know in essence that Semenya has a very distinct advantage mm. and there's no clouding of the advantage It it is there and so Sonia's looking for a way of of dealing with it,
1: because the interesting thing is that at official level, uh, it is—it is, it looks very likely that it is going to be dealt with in a way that ostensibly targets Semenya mm. uh, for for you know special treatment. You know she is going to be made, uh, or the what what they thinking is that the that these athletes are going to be made uh, run with. You know, testosterone limiters is about the best way of putting the the treatment that they're going to get, so that their natural level of testosterone is going to be reduced, yeah, to therefore allow them to to I, I guess somewhat bluntly level the playing field.
2: Well, it's actually interesting to look at the timeline of this because Sonia mentioned nine years, and like that's exactly how long this has been running on. So in two thousand and nine, Semenya won the World Championships out of nowhere as an eighteen-year-old. And she was subjected to a gender test, which was, you know, humiliating and, and tough for a girl of her age. After that, um, the IWAf got into it and they looked at basically, they said, she does have too much an advantage. But they didn't even know really at the time what the average level of testosterone a woman should have uh, would be. So they did tests in 2011 to figure out what the average testosterone level should be. Then they multiplied it by four. And set that as the upper limit, mm. which was pretty fair in their minds, but it still wouldn't, it would still have put Semenya outside their the boundaries that they set. So from that point, they had to run with, uh, they had to take hormone treatment and reduce the testosterone level in Semenya and indeed any other runners with, uh, if you wanted to compete, you basically had, you had to have your testosterone level down, brought down artificially to this low. And so... So, when you finished second in the 2012 Olympics, and gradually from there, while she was on these drugs, her form just dipped and dipped and dipped until 2015, where she, um, like for example, in 2013, she didn't even make the final of the Worlds. Mm. But in 2015, an Indian runner who also suffered from hyperandrogenism, or suffered, I don't know if that's the correct word to use, but who had hyperandrogenism, she won an appeal and the ban came off. And which meant that Semenya didn't have to take the limiting hormones anymore. And very quickly, her form jumped back up and she has been unbeatable since then. Like she is running in the 800 metres um, today, Friday, in the Commonwealth Games, and nobody will get in her. She'll win by half the yeah, track. Exactly. Yeah. And there's even been a number, a lot of suggestion from people over the last while that she is running within herself and deliberately. So as not to draw... So as not to draw that undue that attention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the end of the year, the IAAF... How are, are in November are going to make a ruling on this, and it's possible that they will bring back in the um, the limit.
1: Mm, it seems likely, even more so than possible. Very likely. Right. Yeah, that, that looks like it's a, it's a sort of a done deal.
2: Yeah, and which seems unfair because this girl isn't cheating. Mm. She is uh, she has a naturally occurring advantage, and so that's why the CAS stepped in earlier when the when the IWF. Uh, initially made the ruling they said hang on this isn't fair so it's going to be interesting to see what happens and that's essentially what Sonia's aiming at she's basically saying
1: w- why should we punish this girl for her her natural advantage yeah. and yet uh, the, on the face of it it's, uh, it sort of seems like a wild suggestion it sort of it seems it seems highly unlikely at first glance maybe the more you think of it the more you tease it out mm. it's the sort of thing that uh, that might make sense in the end but I kind of think you'd have a hard time selling it to people. You
2: would. A lot of the comments online I saw where people kind of say, no, oh, but if you're going to create a category for this, should you not create a category mm. for tall people or fat people mm, and all mm, this? Mm. But that's just people being kind of stupid about Dicks. it and yeah. not really yeah, 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 yeah. approaching the, the realism of the mm. issue. Like, for example, there's no upper testosterone limit in men, mm. needless to say. Of course. Uh, and, and it's only the women that come in, which means that this is a unique category. If you can use this word again, like you said, it's something that you kind of feel like you need to tiptoe around your language while you're talking about.
1: Because the thing with with her is that, and it's always been interesting about her, is that there's no neat solution here. No, there never has been. Like there's there's no way of dealing with it that won't feel unfair to somebody. Like it's just it's it's a it's an outlier. uh, And and it's such a tricky thing to, to try and fix from any point of view. And, you know, we're not going to solve it here in six or seven minutes. Um, And I always felt, you know, this is the sort of conversation that we'd have to kind of bring to an end without coming to a conclusion kind of thing but th- there we go I think what, what we might try and do over the next couple of weeks we might try and get Sonia on uh, Sonia's based in Melbourne but uh, I guess I guess we should probably get her on and maybe tease out this with her mm. I mean she obviously knows it far better than we do so exactly, yeah, yeah. she would be interesting to talk to anyway on the show today we're gonna have uh, Dave Hannigan talking to us from New York there's a couple of things going on over in the States that, that are interesting uh, dare I even mention the name of Conor McGregor but yeah We'll get into a bit of him and a little bit of Patrick Reed. Um, but first, I think we'll get on to the biggest event of the weekend uh, by a mile or or even by four and a half miles, Indeed, Pat, yes. is the uh, Grand National. Katie Walsh uh, is uh, on the line with us from Liverpool. Katie, you this is your sixth time uh, riding in the Grand National. Uh, more importantly, uh, you are also uh, the Irish Times Sportswoman of the Month uh, for March. Uh, so thanks for taking the call and uh, it's great to be talking to you.
3: Hi, Malachy. Uh, yeah, cheers. Um, obviously, it was great to be uh, get the Sportsperson of the Month for March. Uh, I was over the moon, so really looking forward to December already
1: well of course if uh, if you win on Saturday I, I'd say you're a fair bet to, to get it for April as well so that, that'll round it out you'll be a shoe-in for the oh year <laughs> I don't
3: think I think we'll take it one day at
1: a time as I say this is your sixth Grand National and uh, you know it's, it's old hat to you now can you take us back to your first one in 2012 uh,
3: yeah first one was obviously very special year in 2012 because of the sea bath and my first ride in the National, obviously, and he was trained by Dad, and he was well fancied. You know, he was favourite, and he deserved to be favourite. He had all the form, and he was the horse that everyone wants to be riding. Yeah, she was a great time. You know, I've been extremely lucky, and also the family have been extremely lucky with the National over the years, with on back in 2000, mm. and then Ruby, obviously, to ride him, and then to ride a hedge under a couple of years later, and Dad has a couple of runners here and there, and I've ridden in it now five times. This will be my sixth, so um, I'm really looking forward to it, and I really can't wait.
1: I saw a great line from you in the Racing Post this week Uh, you were talking about the 2012 race and halfway around Barry Garrity turned to you and asked you how you were going and you were actually afraid to say anything because you were actually going that well
3: Yeah, it's very true. We were just coming across by the Melling Road and um, I think he was, he felt like he was going backwards and uh, he just asked me how I was going and I couldn't even speak (laughs) because um, I didn't want to even think about it to be honest because I knew I was going extremely well at the time. Um, Yeah, but I, Remember that, even though it's 2012, I remember that exact conversation. Well, it was a one-sided conversation, but um, <laughs> yeah, I remember that.
1: Because tell tell us uh, who who have never uh, been on a horse and never in, in a race. When you're when you're going that well, like how, how do you know that you're going that well, and how, how does it feel?
3: I suppose it just feels like do you know you're driving down the M50 and you're cruising along and you look down and you go, jeez i'm doing 150 i need to you know it's like i yeah. just run away with you do you know yeah. what i mean and um then when you're other times then you're in a different car and you're struggling to do 80 right and that's what it's like you just find yourself going extremely easy and it all just happening happening in front of you and you're just trying to ease yourself out of it and uh, it's all about time and then really Cause that's and, what uh, trying to get from fence to fence yeah that's
1: what i was going to ask you like what's uppermost in your mind at that point what are you trying to what are you trying to do
3: uh, not make any mistakes really and just um, the further the race goes on um, you know the less energy every, the less energy everyone's getting uh, not the jockey as such but the horse so you don't want to be hitting too many fences um, so if you can just um, get from A to B and um, try not to hit the front too soon I suppose depends what you're riding depends uh, what the form of the horse and if he's out and out there or if he's not
1: people they talk about a, a Grand National being a lottery and that the best laid plans go out the window and the tapes go up and all that sort of stuff what can you do what steps can you do with, with your horse to improve your chances in that lottery
3: oh I don't know about that Maliki. that's like you know going to the shop that sold the willin lottery ticket the week before and hopefully you get, you'll get a second time lucky it doesn't happen mm. um, there's nothing really you can do I mean that's how much of a lottery it is Um, if you just have to try and maybe stay out of of trouble for as best you can and um, try not to make too many bad decisions, I suppose.
1: And of course, you know, false starts were were a problem there for a couple of years, although they haven't been so bad uh, in recent years, Katie. And the thing that people looking in from the outside, I remember when when all the false starts were, like people would be going, sure, it's four and a half miles. Why are they they all killing themselves to get to the front? Uh, Like, does it really matter that much? But it does, doesn't it? (laughs)
3: Yeah, it does. I think just people like to get into a position. It's easier to kind of be in a position and to ease yourself back out of it than to be chasing yourself into it. So um, as you can imagine, it's like being on the fast lane or the slow lane and deciding that you'd like to be a couple of cars back. It's easier to pull into the slow lane and come back. If you get stuck behind something on the fast lane, you're trying to get out from behind it. Yeah. It's very hard. So that's what it's like. So at least if you're in that position, you can... Ease yourself into a nicer position if you want to, but trying to chase yourself in, into a position is um, is hard.
1: And once you get into the race, Katie, um, the, what what I used to read was that the idea is that you hunt around for the first circuit and then start racing in the second. Well, what is is that the case, or or does the racing kind of start a lot earlier?
3: Um, it depends really, to be honest. It depends what you're riding, what kind of a horse you're riding, I suppose, and um it can change. Not every you don't ride every horse the same, Maliki, yeah. no matter what year it is, you know. So, um like the mayor for Ross she, um she tends to stay, but they tend to go real good gallop, so you can't make something go faster than what it's able. So you just have to get into a position and hope for the best that something doesn't fall in front of me or I don't fall off, and hopefully
1: it'll all work out. <laughs> so tell us about the mare. Uh, it's obviously trained by Ross, your husband, um, and it's an interesting story. Like, it has been uh, the subject of, a, a, I guess, a bit of a betting plunge in the in the last week, uh, gone down from 50 to 1 to about 16s or so uh, midweek there. what um, what what's it, what's it been like? What chance uh, do you think it has?
3: You know, I think it's just like anything it gets fueled by the media. Mm. And um, I suppose the fact that myself and Ross are married and that um, I'm a girl as well. And um, the mayor is probably the only mayor in the race and she's grey, So it's a kind of a bit of a fairy tale, I suppose, for a lot of people. And um, I think people are jumping on to the back of that. Yeah, I mean, she has good form. I mean, she's by no means... Um, an absolute outsider she probably lacks a bit of class like she wouldn't have the class of Annabelle Fly or a couple of more horses at the top end of a handicap but she has a nice weight and uh, she seems to jump well and she definitely stays so um, but as I said to you you need so much luck so hopefully if we can just get over the first and get over the second and the third and get into a rhythm and see what happens from there
1: we better tell people the name of this horse Katie
3: Beta Zeals is her name, but I just call her the
1: mayor. I think a lot of people call her the mayor because they read it and go, "Hmm, that, that that's a lot of French there." I'm not sure I I, I trust myself <laughs> to get to get it right first time. So as long as you yeah. if you're happy with calling her the mayor, I'll do that as well.
3: Well, I call her the mayor, but her name is Beta <laughs> De- 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 <laughs> She's a French mare, yeah.
1: Yeah. And when you talk about luck, Katie, is, with the Grand National, is that is that different to sort of luck in, in other races? Because are you essentially talking about staying away from horses falling in front of you and not falling yourself? Is that more or
3: less it? Uh, yeah, she needs luck in any race, yeah. to be honest. Whether it be it's just the fact that there's so that it's the volume of you. Um, but, I mean, you need so much luck in an Irish national. You know, the year I won the Irish national at Thunder and Roses, I, I lined up on the outside. I easily could have lined up on the inside. Five horses came down at the first. Yeah. You know, that wasn't, I, it wasn't, that wasn't some divine bit of inspiration that I knew that was going to happen. That was pot luck. That's how much luck you need. I easily could have lined up on the inside and could have been brought down. You yeah. know, or easily I lined up on the outside and the five could have fallen on the outside and I could have been brought down. You know, so, I mean... That's what, when I'm talking about luck that's literally the way it works you just need to be in the right place at the right time and hopefully it'll all work out well
1: Well listen Katie thanks a million for, for joining us and uh, the best of luck on the weekend you'll certainly be the the colours that I'll have my eye on uh, well among uh, probably two or three <laughs> others but uh, listen thanks a million for, for uh, helping us out here
0: Cheers Malky thanks very much Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, proudly supporting the Irish Heart Foundation and its CPO for Schools programme, equipping secondary school teachers and students with the skills to save lives.
2: In the Irish Times Weekend. In the magazine, victims of the recession tell how they survived, downsized and ultimately thrived in the years after the crash. While in Weekend Review, Carl O'Brien profiles Ireland's post-millennials, the super-healthy, idealistic but ever-anxious Generation Z. And Fenton O'Toole says it now seems inevitable that Donald Trump will lead America into war. The Irish Times weekend. Your weekends in good hands.
1: What else are we going to be watching this weekend, Pat?
2: Uh, Tottenham Hotspur versus Manchester City on Saturday night, Mal.
1: But it's all over, Pat. Why would we be watching that? Well,
2: there's a couple of different reasons. The main one actually being the start time of the game, seven forty-five. Now, technically, we've had one other game in history on a Saturday night at 7.45. It actually happened last December 23rd but nobody noticed because it was the 23rd of Nobody December. even knows
1: the days around Christmas exactly, never mind yeah, the time; They
2: just kind of all blur into one. Yeah. But this officially marks football running into Saturday night and taking on Strictly Come Dancing and X Factor. And Saturday night takeaway. Saturday night takeaway indeed because from next season there's going to be eight I think it is mm. games scheduled uh, for Saturday nights going directly up against those big TV programmes. It
1: programs. kind of amazed me that it has taken this long.
2: Yeah, kind of, except for, well, it just shows you how fans now are being kind of ignored. Yeah. Because, for example, if you were a Manchester City fan and if you wanted to get back to Manchester on, say, the last train out of Piccadilly, you would have to leave Wembley at halftime.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, in other words, uh, like, this is the... them. Fine, they finally tipped over the line where they go... Fans, we love you in the stadium and all that, but actually the people paying the subscriptions at home are more. Yeah, more they've
1: just excited. decided who their audience is, and their audience isn't even really in Britain. It's on on both sides of the planet, really.
2: Yeah, but also the prime time slot is also a big deal mm. to, to, for them to take on on Saturday nights. So there'll be lots of extra arguments. The other thing that that's going to be interesting: Manchester United can, or sorry, Manchester City can technically win the league on Saturday night if they beat uh, Spurs, and if um, Manchester United don't win the following day, then that would be the game where they clinched the league but far more interestingly would be Harry Kane's ongoing effort I think to win the golden boot <laughs> you, you don't seem to uh, sneer at him as much as I did but it, it,
1: I could not understand
2: all the sneering at Harry Kane over this he claimed a goal that he clearly didn't touch so what? he also <laughs> swore on his daughter's life that he touched it and then there was these, this TV footage that
1: clearly showed him not touching well, it well they gave him the goal in the end so it obviously worked I did like Mohamed Salah coming out and kind of tweeting,
2: wow, really? Yeah. Which was...
1: Mm, I thought that was a little uh, yeah, a little ungracious now out of, out of Salah. He's sure, he's got to keep scoring. He's obviously going to win the golden boot. My, my whole thing here is, I don't know why... Look, all Harry Kane is judged on is goals. If he goes one game without scoring a goal, they're a bit of grumbling. If he gets three games without a goal... That is, you know, there's a crisis there. That is his whole currency. He has no other currency other than goals. Of course, he's gonna, you know, swear. Well, maybe, you know, swearing on the kid's life is maybe a wee bit far, Harry. If you definitely didn't touch it. But this is this is all he is judged on. I don't know. If if this was a golf, people would be frowning at him. It's the
2: surely the equivalent of signing for a an incorrect scorecard here. It's not golf, though. That it's football. All, you can't trust footballers. No, you can't trust saying. footballers.
1: Even even a very patently sound footballer like Harry Kane. Like, we all, we all like Harry Kane, don't we? I think that's why this annoys me. Everybody <laughs> likes Harry
2: Kane. You wrote a column a few weeks ago in the Times about how it's hard to hate this England team. and yeah. Harry Kane was a central uh, building brick on, time, yeah. on that argument yeah. because nobody hates Harry Kane. But now he's done this and you're kind of rolling your eyes at him a little bit and going, oh, come on, Harry, you're better than that. He can win the golden boot without stealing goals off your teammates.
1: Nah, I don't know. I I could I couldn't. I didn't even really know. You know, it's one of those classic stories now that uh, I uh, I didn't hear it at the time or didn't see the story at the time, but uh, kind of became. Uh, osmotically aware of it through uh, the slagging that he was getting on Twitter. Yeah. You know, that, that like somebody took six wickets in a, in a cricket match and it was put down to, to Harry Kane. And I was going, I don't really get the joke here. What, what, what am I missing here? And then eventually, you know, you, you find out what the story is. And I went, really? That's all he did? Is he claimed a goal that, that may or may not have touched them? My Lord. Like, you, God, you, are, you have to do very little to become a Twitter pariah these days.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Maybe, but I uh, haven't said that. Um, you're saying about how it's his 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 life. Um, I saw something that I really liked from his fiance at the start of the year. Um, apparently, he tweeted out this thing saying, "2017 has been really good to me," oh, and it. he had eight hat trick balls, kind of, with, with, to go with the caption. And uh, his fiance wrote in, "How first child question mark engagement question mark?" and he, and he replied, "Of course, they were great as well."
1: But I heard and and shamefully though, I heard that he took that down. He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 tweet I, I mean, never apologise for a good gag, Harry. I, I mean, no matter how much trouble it gets you in at home. <laughs> anyway, uh, the we will move on. The we're going to talk uh, stuff in America now. I uh, I've been reading uh, Vanity Fair this week, Pat. You're reading Vanity Fair. Excellent. Well done. That's not funny. I can read Vanity Fair. Fine. I was reading specifically their account of the FBI raiding the hotel where Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's lawyer, uh, was snatched up during the week. And they opened with a particularly excellent uh, intro, which said that uh, when FBI agents streamed into the Park Avenue Hotel... Uh, where Donald Trump's lawyer was. Uh, the paparazzi camped outside didn't notice them because they were too busy looking for Conor McGregor, who is staying in the same hotel. Oh, my God. That's what Vanity Fair say anyway. The coverage of all this has been predictably pole faced over in America. Uh, and Dave Hannigan is on the line to uh, tell us all about it. Dave, I presume you are particularly worried for all the, what all this means for Conor's career going forward. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, people, people, I used to get very angry a couple of years ago when people would say, Conor McGregor, he's the Irish, Muhammad Ali, and I would bristle at that. And now it turns out, you know, both of them are going to lose three years in their prime in their late 20s. And I guess people were right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have dismissed that so out of hand in the first place, because the way things are looking, you know, for McGregor, he's going to lose some of his prime to his own idiocy, his own idiocy and, you know, this, this Mayweather thing. And between the jigs and the reels, we could be looking at a three-year absence from the octagon.
1: Well, and, and what suspense that will build up for when he, when he eventually comes back.
0: Exactly, I mean look, this, this thing, there are so many levels to this story last week and you know, the, the one that's what struck me as somebody outside of Ireland in the first place watching this was the idea when the coverage happened and the, the event was covered that people said, oh The media are delighted because he's working class and they love bringing down somebody who's working class. And I I am absolutely flabbergasted by that because most of our sporting heroes are working class. And, you know, I never remember when Roy Keane, who was possibly the most divisive sportsman in Irish in recent Irish history before McGregor, you know, I never remember Roy Keane's, you know, roots in working class cock ever being an issue. I never remember when Paul McGraw was being criticised, you know, for going AWOL or, or and stuff that his class or where he came from. But this idea with McGregor that he's this working class hero and that's why people are trying to bring him down among the many baffling threads to this. That's one <laughs> that I can't, I can't really reconcile.
1: Yeah, he is uh, the odd thing with with McGregor. Uh, I think to some extent. I think definitely there was a point here maybe about a year ago maybe in the build up to the Mayweather thing or, or, or possibly possibly after it where, where he sort of jumped that shark between went from being a, a sport, primarily a sportsman to primarily a celebrity and I think he had a longer stint maybe as a sportsman in, in, in America but I think that that has that looks to me look, looking on from afar that, that he is deeply perfectly in the celebrity zone now
0: Oh, he absolutely is, and, and this, this, even, even with the treatment of this, you know, you read details of the NYPD officers shadow boxing with him, and, you know, being delighted by his presence in the station house, and you, you understand that he is, you know, whatever whatever we can say about his merits as a, as a fighter and an athlete, he is unquestionably now, you know, has a, has a level of fame, a sort of, you know, whatever, a bold-faced name, as they call him in American society, and he, he has that, you know, the, the, you know, what you opened with the paparazzi ignoring the uh, men in suits, possibly bringing down the president yeah. <laughs> to get a picture of, or to get a possible photograph of McGregor and his posse leaving the hotel. And even then, in that, there's another great detail. When this happened last week, everybody was like, oh, this will be it. This will be the thing that will bring Conor McGregor to his senses and save him from himself, and he will emerge from this better, and, you know, his career will restart. And, and then we hear reports of him like, ripping up the hotel over the weekend. And you're you're saying, well, that doesn't sound like a man who's chastened uh, by the events of last week in any way at all.
1: Well, let's uh, get get dragged into uh, uh, the sporting side of it a, a little bit. I mean, this is actually a real-world problem for him. You know, I, I presume it will be plea bargained out and, and, and what have you, and he won't end up in jail or, or anything like that. But... Um, it can, if if he has any interest in in a UFC career coming back to it, it it can possibly get in the way. It could he could possibly have easy issues and all that sort of stuff. Um, this uh, for the for the UFC though. Well, how do you think that this uh, has has worked out for them? How do you think that they have handled it?
0: Well, I think they've handled it very well from a commercial point of view. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to praise them in terms of, I, I think it's a fairly rancid organization the way it runs its affairs. But they made the absolute best of this in a way, so much so that it's almost suspicious how well they handled it. And, you know, Dana White's terrible. Oh, this is disgusting. This is terrible. You know, this is the warrant out for his arrest, and we're so set. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. And then two days later, they happen to have great footage of it that nobody's seen yet. So we're going to put that out there just to make sure that the story stays alive. But the thing about the UFC is last week's events, the complete chaos, Around that promotion, and whether you know Conor McGregor got into this got into this media day. I mean, you've attended sporting events. Um, you know, I've attended sporting events. It's bloody difficult to get into these places, especially in a major venue in America where they are hyper security conscious. And especially and when you
1: when you have a crew.
0: No, well, it's, I, I mean it's you can you can man.
1: you might be able to slide in on your own, but when you've got a posse, that's hard to hard to sneak through the gates.
0: You know, and the, the idea that one you know, one of, one of McGregor's MacLife people opened a door, you know, getting down into the bowels of that venue where they were, partly strong, as you pointed out, is that is so difficult that I cannot believe that part of the story. But to go back to the business, so I, I believe UFC were complicit in this in some way, and that's why you don't see UFC coming out, issuing a six-month ban or anything like that. What happened last week shows us that the UFC direly needs conor mcgregor and that's why they have made the absolute most out of this arrest there's so much ham acting in this in this whole scenario and so much pretend grief and pretend <laughs> outrage and you know it really is part of their you know of the modus operandi for that whole that whole thing i mean i i said this years ago There's there's a real whiff of the wwe about ufc last week confirmed it last week confirmed that as a as a you know, business model, they may be in some trouble and that's why they need McGregor so badly. And the other thing is, if you notice the increased traffic between WWE and UFC with people going both ways before, between the promotions, I don't think that does anything for the credibility of your sport. And I'm not one of these people who believe, oh, it's not really a sport. It's a sport, absolutely. I mean, I don't deny that. But the, when, you're, when your fighters are moving seamlessly from pretend wrestling to the octagon, one minute they're on that one minute there on that, that does not lend itself to people seeing that this is a sport with a long-term future as a mainstream sport in, in America.
1: Well, speaking of soap operatic storylines, and this this will allow us a, a neat pivot to something else we wanted to talk about. Um, Patrick Reed won the Masters last Sunday night, and uh, I was wondering if you could fill us in. Usually when after somebody wins a major, certainly their first major, they spend the following week, you know, as you as you mentioned they're yucking it up a bit of late night shows, they be on Jimmy Fallon and all that sort of carry on through the week. Reid has sort of gone to ground as far as I can make out uh, after after last weekend.
0: This is a very this is a very very unusual story in a, in i mean in a, in american sport and i think in any sport because you know the the way the coverage now is so so 360 degrees and so 24/7 that we know everything about these people and and their humanity has played up and that's part of the commercial aspect of the whole thing but read just is, an, is, a, is a strange character. He's an unlikable character with a kind of reputation trailing behind him uh, with a reputation trailing behind him from his college days. He's not a popular man in the locker room and, you know, now he comes out and he won this thing. You know, this was a fantastic golfing performance. You look at, you look at the players he beat, look at the quality of the people that were chasing him. This was one of the great victories. You know, it wasn't the most exciting maybe, but he was, you know, when you look Look at it, this is one of the great victories. It's not getting the airplay that it deserves because Reed we're now discovering that his personality is not what we expect from athletes or and his backstory is too troubled and too complex for the media. I mean CBS who would you know, you know from, from dipping into American media, they love the human interest story. Oh yeah. Like that this, that this guy's family His his mother and his father and his sister were watching him in a house, watching him win this Masters, in a house a couple of miles from Augusta National, in the town, and not there, because they were estranged from him. Jeez, that's an unbelievable story, and it's incredible. And again, we're all, you know in an era when journalism is getting kicked around the place, like let's point out that Alan Shipnock mm. of Sports Illustrated did incredible piece of reportage by going after the family, or not going after them, but pursuing an interview with the family and talking to them about what it was like to watch their son, whom they had invested decades of and decades into and money into winning, you know fulfilling the dream, but they weren't allowed to be part of it because he's effectively separated from them.
1: And it was interesting actually to watch that, uh, you know from afar during the week uh, Shipnock took a huge amount of opprobrium for concentrating on that side of the story, whereas to any any eye, I would have thought that is precisely the story. You know, if if Phil Mickelson's standing or Phil Mickelson's wife standing at the at the 18th green uh, after she has recovered from cancer is the story after after he wins a Masters, then the the other side of family life is surely a story.
0: And, you know, when you watch CBS's coverage of The Masters, which is unintentionally hilarious every single year, with, with Jim Nance in this, you know, august voice talking like as if he's commentating on a presidential funeral and, you know, giving us. The, he tells us every. De- his grandpa, Jimmy, you know, dug a golf hole in the backyard and that's where he learned to pitch. And, you know, <laughs> so they know every detail. Every detail of the. Meanwhile, anybody who's followed golf has gone. oh, there's Patrick Reed. Yeah. That, that family story has been lurking, in the that elephant in the room uh, for some time. And, and you're right, Shipnock was criticized. And, and again, you know, Shipnock, as somebody who follows the golf media, here, is this incredibly intrepid reporter who goes, and I've seen him at golf events when I used to cover them back in the day, would go to extraordinary lengths to try to get a quote or to get an audience with somebody. And, you know, he should be celebrated for offering us a fuller picture of what of what went on here, but again, the other thing about Reed is is you know the other the other elephants in the room the, the cheating in his college mm. the cheating during his college career and then the um, the TUE that he received when he played in the Olympics exactly. you know th- those are not those are not savory elements of the story.
1: They're not. To get back a little bit, though, to the family thing, an interesting aspect uh, that you mentioned to me uh, during the week was that this uh, sort of tension in families, especially with talented kids, uh, you know, trying to make it in sport in America. I mean, it's, it's not unheard of by any means.
0: It's not. And it's, it's, a, it's a product of the warped system of youth development we have in sports in America. And this is true of every sport, where for a kid to play any sport seriously requires a massive investment of time and money by the family in the kids so once the kid shows some talent in anything gymnastics golf soccer you know whatever it is then it's up to the parents to finance this this uh, dream if you like and they do this to extraordinary extraordinary extent you know you see families at the olympics cheering on you know the daughter the gymnast out on the floor turns out the family declared for bankruptcy two weeks before the olympics because you know financing this dream had taken so much golf it would require, if, if you had a seven or eight-year-old who was good at golf, you'd be looking at at least hundred grand and possibly more over the next 10 years to get that kid to the tournaments where they need to play to measure themselves against the best, to get them the lessons they need. Soccer, absolute ridiculous amounts of money being spent by people. I think 20% of American families spend more than $12,000 a year on sports for their kids. And what that leads to with the Reed situation is, and, you know, some of the quotes from Reed's wife, uh, Justine, come out and she says, oh, the family saw him as a meal ticket. There's this tension between the kid on whom all the pressure is to deliver. You know, we've invested all this money and all this time in you, and for him him, or her to deliver, because there's another famous story, Carolee Lloyd, who was one of the best soccer players, one of the best female soccer players in the world and, you know, mainstay of the American women's national team. She's also estranged from her family in similar circumstances. And, I, and I'm surprised it actually doesn't happen more because, you know, the kid, to be 16 and, or 17 and to realize, you know, maybe I don't like this game anymore or maybe, you know, I, my talent or my ability is, is deserting me, but the whole family is here hanging on my every move to see if I can make it, make it big and justify everything that they've invested in me over the years. It's a really and it's, it's everything that's wrong with the the child's sport arena, which unfortunately I know a little too much about for my own kids, is a sick, It's a sick, disgusting environment that puts me... I mean, I love sport. i made my living covering sport. It is a disgusting environment that would put most people off ever putting a ball or a bat or a racket or a club in your child's hand.
1: And the thing about it is that, that the more storied athletes become, and this kind of even goes back to to what we know about Reed and what we know about his his family circumstances the more the the more successful they become the more their stories get to be told and people take their lead from it you know parents take their lead from the, this is what this is what needs to happen to these kids like i'm I've, I've just by pure coincidence i'm i got the tiger woods book in uh, in the post the other day i'm reading it and i'm in the early chapters of what of, of you know the, the bordering on child abuse that Earl Woods uh you know subjected Tiger to in in his early days and and I knew to a certain extent that it that it was it was heavy and it was but I didn't know it in, in the quite the detail that it is and yet there's no doubt, you know, that, that, uh, that golf parents all across the world would be reading it going, well, you know, I know where it was, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't see myself in that man or in, in, what, in his actions. But, yeah, there's a couple of things I could take from that for, for young Johnny just to get him that, that extra inch along the road.
0: There absolutely is. And like when Tiger unraveled, um, you know, when Tiger unraveled, the amazing thing was that people, you know, that we didn't see it coming sooner because he really, his trajectory of his life and career was that of the child acting prodigy, you know, the child actor in Hollywood who who basically gets under all this pressure and, and you know, makes this great career for themselves and then unravels under the pressure of it because once they go out off, off screen, they, they don't know how to handle their lives. And, and Tiger, I think, is a fantastic example of that. But, look, the, the, like, let's just give you some of the stuff that, you know, putting your child on a plane, flying a 10-year-old across the country to play in a golf tournament... Right, think about that. That's abuse right there. Cause you're, and I, you know, you're with the child, but like, what are you saying to the child? Go here and you better do well there. Like, how much have we spent on this? And you know, the the, the, the gifted kids, the more gifted the kid is, the more pressure they have. You know, I I've had. I I've, I've, I've watched a nine-year-old lacrosse team training one morning and lacrosse is obviously a big sport here. It's not even a professional, it's a minor league professional sport here but it's a big college sport. I watched nine-year-olds do a physical workout for lacrosse one day involving sledgehammers. Right? <laughs> involving the swinging of sledgehammers. Not at each was, other, presumably. No, not at each other but you're looking at going, this is the most bizarre and, and the parents sat in the stands watching it like it wasn't like the coach took them off to a dark corner of the complex I see,
1: and say don't do don't tell
0: evening. your dad sonny yeah, yeah, incredible. The parents were happy out to watch this. And, you know, the parents think nothing of, like, I drove my son six hours last weekend to play in a soccer tournament. Oh, how'd he do? Well, then he got on for 10 minutes at the end of the third game. <laughs> and you're like, well, I think that's going to be very beneficial to his development. It's, you know, golf, I think because of the individual nature of golf, it's more, and tennis, I think, was, is another great example of this. It's more pronounced in those sports because the kid. Is out there on their own on the court or on the course and we can see it and, and you know therefore they're, they're kind of naked before us in, in, in a metaphorical sense and their suffering is more obvious to us but it's in the team sports as well it's, as I said you know this is a very sick country when it comes to children's <laughs> sports and, and the read thing is an inevitable byproduct of that it, it happens all the time and, and you know, we just hear about it when it's high profile that these you know the kids break away from the people who invested all their time and money in them to get them to this point.
1: Well, your uh, continuing bemusement at the uh, nation that you've made your home, Dave, is something that we'll no doubt touch, touch on again as we uh, carry on with this show over the weeks to come. Thanks a million for uh, helping us out here, uh, and uh, we'll chat to you again sometime.
0: Cheers Malachy thanks a lot guys thanks
1: Mary and Dave and uh, thanks very much to Katie Walsh who joined us earlier to talk about the Grand National thanks to Pat and to Declan uh, you can get on to me at Malachy Clerkin on Twitter uh, our email address is addedtime at irishtimes.com and uh, we'll see you all again next week
0: Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland who are proud to hand over their Leinster jersey sponsorship to the Irish Heart Foundation for the Guinness Pro 14 semi-final